0: Uh, several years ago, probably around six at this point, I was uh, sitting in my office going through what had become an annual tradition uh, when a new thought struck me. The tradition had to do with Halloween and, and no, I wasn't uh, celebrating Halloween Instead, I was wrestling over whether or not to celebrate Halloween. See, my oldest son was around four at the time, right around the age where trick-or-treating starts to become really fun. Uh, I grew up trick-or-treating. Honestly, it's probably among my favorite memories growing up, dressing up in some fun costume, going door to door with my friends, getting candy, uh, even getting a little spooked. I loved it. I I thought it was a lot of fun. And as a father who loves his children and wants to give them good things there was part of me that wanted to share that with them i wanted them to have the fun i had going trick-or-treating growing up the thing i couldn't get past though was what the holidays celebrated no the concern wasn't that we would be worshiping the devil if we went uh, trick-or-treating i know that's what some people think i actually grew up in a church that taught me that so i'm familiar with with those arguments and i don't agree i don't think that's what a parent is doing when they choose to take their kid uh trick-or-treating instead my concern was that at the end of the day it was a holiday that still seemed to celebrate death. you see it in the tombstones and the skeletons and the ghosts the imagery of halloween is saturated in death and when we take our kids out dressed up as pirates or cowboys or whatever we take them out against all this imagery of death and then we smile over it And personally, i just couldn't get past that as a christian now to be clear i'm not saying you have to agree with me on this point i'm not saying that my conviction must be your conviction i think this is a bit of a gray area and ultimately you need to act according to your conscience but personally i've heard all the arguments About how we can sanctify the holiday by going out into the community and being light in the midst of the darkness, you know, handing out the best candy and and all of that. And at the end of the day, when I thought not just what I was communicating to the community, but to my own child, the thing I couldn't get past as I take them out trick-or-treating was the fact that no matter what I might have said to them, it still seemed like I was telling them that death is kind of fun. That is something that we can laugh at and enjoy. And and that didn't seem compatible with my Christian faith. It's the same reason why I stopped watching horror movies after I became a Christian. The scripture tells us that death is the enemy, that death is the result of sin. It tells us that Christ himself, our Savior, had to suffer all the wrath of God on account of my sin in order to destroy death. So how then can I turn around and be anything but repulsed? By the idea of it how can i anyway think that death is worth celebrating or how can i be entertained by it? and yet, in spite of the fact that i knew all this here i was wrestling with this decision on whether or not to take my kids trick-or-treating and this has more or less become had had more or less become an annual tradition to me uh, every year halloween would come up and i'd go through the whole debate again should we go should we not go now keep in mind, my kids weren't really wrestling with it. They had never gone trick-or-treating. Uh, they weren't asking me to go or anything like that. At that age, they didn't even really know it was a thing. No, no, I was the one struggling with it. So where was that coming from? As I reflected on it, I realized that there are a lot of ways I could answer that question. But in large part, it was coming from my memories of that event, the sights, the smells, the decorations, the fun I had with my friends, the nostalgia, it had all worked together to form a powerful impression on my mind. One that was actually very pleasant, very sweet, strangely enough. And so now I worried that by denying my own children participation in that event, I was denying them a very good thing. Am I doing that unnecessarily? Am I denying them something that they are free to enjoy? And if I do, well, they think that I don't have fun. Is, is that going to be their impression of my faith that it's sort of dour and serious? Right? Because that's not what I believe. There's joy in our faith. And it's, it's not it's just not a joy over death, right? How do I let them know this? How do I help them understand? I'm not trying to deny them something good. I'm trying to give them something better. These are the types of questions that I was wrestling with. And as I worked my way through these questions, I started to become fascinated with the concept of holidays. I began to see that holidays are not only an expression of the things we value, the things we celebrate, but they're also incredibly instructive. One generation passes on what they value to the next, largely through the celebration of their holidays. Those sights, those smells, that nostalgia It forms an impression on the mind that's very difficult to break. It got me thinking about what events we do celebrate as Christians, what kind of things we do get excited about and have fun over and what this reflects about what we value. Okay. I thought to myself, so I can't take my kid trick or treating because Halloween tends to exalt some concepts that I think are contrary to my Christian faith. I'm concerned that they're going to interpret this as Christians, don't have fun that there aren't things that we get excited about or enjoy well then what do we celebrate what do we rejoice over and i have to tell you the more i thought about it the more discouraged i became because honestly there's not much there really there are only two holidays which we as evangelical christians tend to celebrate which we would call a religious holiday and that's easter and christmas i think you could maybe throw thanksgiving in there as well though i don't know how many people actually think about the religious overtones of that event when they celebrate everything else are more or less secular holidays that reflect some cultural value we celebrate the, our nation's founding on the 4th of july we celebrate love on valentine's day mothers and fathers on mother and spa, mother's day and father's day the irish for whatever reason on saint patrick's day you know you get the point We don't really celebrate that much. And even those events that we do celebrate are either a virtual afterthought, like Easter, which gets maybe a day in most people's minds instead of the whole month, like what people are increasingly doing with Halloween. Or if it's not an afterthought, it's almost completely consumed by concepts that have nothing to do with the event itself, like what we have with Christmas, you know, with Santa Claus and Christmas trees and snowmen. Again, point being, we're pretty bad at this we don't do holidays well and i think that's a little bit of a problem because again holidays reflect what people value and i think what we see as we look into the church is that we don't value very much there's not a lot out there we think is worth the time to celebrate i started thinking about that first as a father i suppose and then second as a pastor i started to think to myself what sort of values ought we to celebrate together If we're doing it right what sort of holidays really should be on the christian calendar Admittedly, it was a a halloween that got me thinking about this again as i wrestled through whether or not to celebrate that event it occurred to me how strange my kids might think we are as they got older and realized that all their friends celebrated halloween and we didn't and the more that settled in the more i was okay with that we are different i told myself We are in the world while still being separate from it. And this is part of what I get to communicate. This is partly how I get to communicate that, not through our non-participation in that holiday. When my kids ask me, why don't we trick or treat? It will become an opportunity for me to explain this spiritual truth to them. And how, as Christians, we celebrate life, not death, light and not darkness. I started to wonder in what other ways ought we to be different? We're not of this world that should probably be reflected even in the things we celebrate, right? Because we don't share the same values. We probably shouldn't get excited about the same things as the world. So what would that look like? And as I considered this, it took me back to the old Testament. You see, holidays are, are tricky things. Unless you have uh, the marketing capital, of the hallmark cards incorporated, you can't really just create a holiday, right? Holidays are rooted in historical events or, or cultural, Traditions, And so I thought, what events or traditions are there in our past? And it took me back to the Old Testament. And what we discover there is that God himself understands and endorses the importance of holidays. There's incredibly detailed holiday schedule actually spelled out in the Old Testament, which is designed to communicate key points about the character of God to the people of Israel. You take the most famous holiday. For instance which would be sabbath and you have this weekly reminder that quote in six days the lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed so every week this is what god's people are supposed to recall as they celebrate the sabbath that their god is the god of the heavens and the earth well in the old testament there were three different times of year when every male in israel was to journey to jerusalem to celebrate a festival before the Lord, all of which were designed to help communicate Israel's national identity by recalling various aspects of their redemption from Egypt. Two of them you're probably already familiar with. The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is the feast that immediately follows Passover, so basically Easter. Though, of course, the meaning of that event wouldn't have been exactly the same as what we celebrate today as Christians after the resurrection. Instead, For Israel, it communicated their sudden deliverance from Egypt, the 10 plagues, the Passover lamb, all of that. The second is the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks. This is what you and I would call Pentecost. This is not just a harvest festival, the celebration of the beginning of the wheat harvest, but traditionally it's a holiday also associated with the giving of the law. It was understood that the law was first given on Pentecost. Of course, we also remember that day as Christians because It was during that festival that the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles the very first time in Acts 2. The third festival is less familiar because there's no New Testament event that coincides with it. And that's the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. This is a holiday that occurs in the first month of the Jewish ecclesiastical year, the seventh month of their civil year, basically around late September, early October on our calendar, which also happens to be around two weeks after the date that many Jews believe commemorated the creation of the earth. It's also known as the Feast of Ingathering, according to Exodus 23. According to the Jewish agricultural schedule, uh, planting typically took place from November through February. Various harvests then occurred from April through October. And this means that October, was the very end of the growing season. So like Pentecost, it was a harvest festival, only it commemorated the very end of the harvest season instead of the beginning of it. This was the very last harvest before the planting season would begin again during Israel's winter, rainy winter months. The feast is known as the Feast of Booths because during this festival, the people of Israel would construct temporary shelters called sukkahs, which were erected quote, this is from Leviticus 23, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So Passover recalls the escape from Egypt, Pentecost, the giving of the law, booths, the 40 years spent in the wilderness. We're not too familiar with this festival, but this one I think is really interesting. If I could put it this way, again, while the Passover reminded Israel of their sudden escape from Egypt and Pentecost of their covenant with God, what tabernacles reminded them of was their gathering together as a people of God in the very presence of God. Every year when Israel came to Jerusalem and gathered around the temple in their booths, they reenacted that time in the wilderness when they huddled around the pillar of fire and pillar of cloud as God led them from the land of their bondage to the land of promise a barren wasteland in fact this festival of all the festivals is probably the most eschatological in its focus it looks not just back to the time when god did deliver israel but even forward to the time when god would deliver israel once again in fact according to zechariah after the lord fights for jerusalem and delivers israel from the nations that gather there against jerusalem to wage war It says that in that day, not just Israel, but even all the nations of the earth, that means folks like you and me, it says that we will all go up to Jerusalem year after year, quote, to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. In fact, on this last point, perhaps even more interesting to consider, according to Numbers 29, a total of 70 bulls are offered during the Feast of Booths And I was listening to a rabbi just this week explain that the 70 bulls represent the 70 nations scattered after the Tower of Babel, according to Genesis 10 and 11. And that this was because whenever the people of Israel prayed for the winter rains, which was part of the Feast of Booths, that they were actually praying for an event that would affect all of the nations. So they weren't just praying for themselves when they prayed during the Feast of Booths. They were praying for the blessing of all the nations. Listen, I think of this festival, this one which looks ahead at this future harvest, the very end of the harvest, when not just Israel, but all the nations of the earth will gather together to worship God, this time which actually preceded the planting season, this time during which they prayed for these winter rains to then come and water their seed. And I can think of no better time of year for us as Christians to ponder and celebrate what ought to be a very important concept for us, and that's missions. Missions is the reason the church exists here on the planet in this present age, as you hear me say often, right? The purpose of the church is worship, but its present mission is the Great Commission. So if there is any value that we should impart to our children, any event that we ought to celebrate, it's the expansion of the gospel across the entire face of the earth. Until ultimately, finally, this culminates in the worship of Christ among the nations. So that's what we're going to begin doing here during the month of October. October is going to serve as missions month, that cornerstone. It's the time when we not only anticipate the harvest, but then hopefully determine to go out and scatter seed as well. And there are several ways that we hope to do that this month this year i anticipate it will all be rather basic but my hope is that as this idea develops year after year the concept will become more and more refined of course we're going to have our own sort of uh feast of booths uh celebration uh this coming saturday for instance at the weavers Uh, that's supposed to be part of the celebration portion of this month It's a time for us to get together and rejoice over the coming harvest and rejoice over the god who dwells in the heavens and does whatever he pleases Uh, later today i hope to send out a devotional to you which i would encourage you to go and do this week either individually or as a family which i hope will help prepare you uh, for that event we also want to use this month as a time to plant seed later this month for instance we're going to have a a church-wide garage sale and We're not only going to use the funds that we raised from that to support missions but we're also hoping it becomes a way to get people to meet uh, a way for us to meet people in the community and maybe even start up a spiritual conversation or two and then mixed in with all that we're going to use the next four sundays to consider the idea of missions and how it all works uh, together as a church again uh, this idea is still in development my hope is that as you see where this is all going you can help me think through how to do this better year after year. But at least for right now, the plan is to move progressively from week to week through the geographical expansion of the gospel. Again, the Feast of Booths is a festival with global implications. In fact, one of the, the concepts that this holiday was supposed to celebrate was the omnipresence of God, that God is God over the whole earth. And so it makes sense that as we think about these concepts, in relation to the gospel that we do so by tracking the spread of the the gospel from jerusalem to to Judea to samaria to the ends of the earth only in our case it will be carthage to missouri to the united states to the ends of the earth and i'm going to begin this morning with a text that i hope will encourage all of us to be engaged in this mission personally And that's 2 Corinthians 5. If you would, please go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 is a particularly good text for us to get started with because it deals with another theme that is central to the Feast of Booths, another concept that we should be thinking on and even imparting to the next generation, an idea that should fuel our passion and drive for missions, and that's death. You see, there's a reason why Halloween is celebrated in the fall. Uh, Halloween, in case you weren't aware, at least as we celebrate it, it's really just a conglomeration of different holidays that have to do with death, both pagan and Christian. Of course, we've lost a lot of the sense of that today. Today, it's all about, you know, candy and scares, but traditionally it's rooted in a number of different holidays from a number of different cultures that use this time of year to contemplate death. And there's a reason why so many cultures elected to do this in the fall. And that's because as the crops bear their harvest and die as the leaves change and then fall, we are reminded of the fact that everything in this life is impermanent and that one day that change will affect us as well. And we too will fall to the earth and die from dust to dust. You were created, right? God says and to dust, you shall return. It's no different with the Feast of Tabernacles. As the Jews celebrated the very last harvest of the year, and as they did so dwelling in these sukkahs, which were built to be uh, last only a very short period of time, they eventually began to see this festival not only as a reminder of the time they spent in the wilderness, but as a reminder as well of their own ongoing sojourn. The entire wilderness experience becomes a kind of metaphor. Just as the people dwelled in the wilderness only temporarily before coming into the land of their permanent habitation, the land of their inheritance, the land of Canaan, so also does the Feast of Tabernacles remind the people that this life is only temporary, that the place of their permanent habitation is still future. It's after death. In this morning's passage, we're going to see Paul play with this idea, even using the exact imagery, the the image of the tent, the tabernacle, the booth. He's going to connect it with his, the notion of his own coming death. And we're going to see how this transformed his own approach to this life. And my hope is that as you watch the leaves change and fall this year, as you watch, perhaps even your own gardens and flower beds, bear the last of their harvest and die, that you'll be reminded of what Paul says here. And be encouraged to be transformed in the same way according to the same pattern of thinking let's go ahead and read this passage together i don't know i plan on that i plan on doing this every year but at least for this year we're going to spend the next three weeks taking a break from our ongoing exposition of first corinthians and we're going to spend it instead working our way through second corinthians 5. and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 in particular there the apostle paul says For we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil as paul writes these words he finds himself in a rather familiar situation or at least one that would seem rather familiar to us by this point for almost a year now we've been working our way through paul's first letter to the corinthians and if you recall One of the central issues that Paul has to address when he writes that letter is the Corinthians opinion of his own ministry. Paul was of course, was the one who planted the church at Corinth. He was the founding missionary for the church in that city. But despite what you might think that didn't necessarily mean that the Corinthians had a very high opinion of Paul. Paul administered in that city for a while, but eventually he returned to his sending church in Antioch, And in his absence, the theology of this young church began to be twisted and shaped by the cultural forces of their surrounding society. And the result is that by the time Paul gets back into the region, at the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, their opinions about Paul have changed. They haven't necessarily abandoned their faith just yet. Instead, they think they've actually advanced in it far beyond even that of their founding apostle. You might wonder what would ever cause them to think this. Ultimately, there seem to be uh, several factors playing into it, but we saw in 1 Corinthians 4 that at least one of these factors was Paul's suffering for the gospel. The Corinthians had adopted this line of thinking, which you actually tend to see today in, in a lot of charismatic churches, that the more materially blessed you are, the greater favor you enjoy with God. The Corinthians have seen Paul's suffering and their comparative comfort and ease and they have interpreted this to mean that they enjoy a greater degree of favor with God than he does. That they're wiser, perhaps even better Christians than he is. And they're taking this belief and they're projecting it across his teaching. They're saying, you know, Paul doesn't really know as much as he says he does. He may have got us started in the faith, uh, but that doesn't mean he knows everything. If you recall, he wasn't really that present when he spoke to us, right? He's sort of a bad speaker, honestly. And not only that, but the stuff that he covers isn't even that deep. It's so basic. If you remember, Paul not only had to say to them, I'm not judged by you. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. But he even had to warn them. He had to tell them, remember, I'm your spiritual father. You learn from me, and you do as I say, and if you don't, then I'll have to bring the rod and discipline you. Well, Paul is still dealing with the same situation as he writes this letter. To put it succinctly, the Corinthians don't seem to have received the instruction that Paul gave them in 1 Corinthians. If anything, it only served to amplify their rebellion against Paul. There are church leaders that have even begun to openly challenge Paul's authority in the wake of 1 Corinthians. Paul then visited the city personally in order to resolve this conflict. He refers to this as his painful visit here in chapter 2, verse 1. In what sense that visit is painful or was painful is somewhat of a matter of debate. But what's apparent is that after making that visit and then after writing another letter was apparently fairly severe, which we don't seem to have record of, uh, the Corinthians finally repented of their rebellion. And they're once again submitting to the instruction of the apostle Paul. That's the basic setting of Second Corinthians. And what Paul is doing now is, is he's writing a kind of reconciliation letter as he gives them news of his upcoming plans, as well as to continue to defend his apostleship. Now, this last part is apparently still needed, because although the Corinthians had repented, Paul still recognizes the opportunity for another rebellion. So, that's what's going on in this letter. And as Paul does all of this, another familiar theme emerges. And that's this concern over the body. Again, that's been a major concern of Paul's during the last couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians. Uh, The Corinthians, as you now know, have this perception that the body is inherently bad. And this perception was leading them down one of two paths. Either they were saying that because the body is bad, it doesn't matter what you do with it. You can eat what you want. You can have sex with whoever you want. It's not a big deal in the end because it's all passing away. It's part of this old earthly kind of existence. and, And they're spiritual people. They're either saying that, or they're saying that because the body is bad, they need to deny it. They actually need to refrain from all sex, even sex with one spouse, since, again, the body is a part of this old, earthly kind of existence. Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending his ministry, which he does in part by explaining his view of suffering and persecution. And this ultimately takes him into his understanding of the body, and the Christian's perspective on it. Again, this was one of the major complaints that the Corinthians had against Paul, that he suffered so much on account of his faith. Well, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul explains how this all ties into his view of the body. And in the process, Paul provides us with the proper perspective on the body, one which is not only compatible with what we find over in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, but one which I think should also inform us of Paul's meaning in that passage. I think you'll see there's a lot of overlap here. Paul is really just continuing some of the same things that we've been encountering together over the past couple of months. So what does Paul say then? How does he interpret the frailty of the body? If the body's impermanence doesn't mean that we should indulge it with physical pleasures, you know, live for the moment, that sort of thing. And if it doesn't mean that we should deny the cravings of the body or even punish it for the practice of religious asceticism, then how should we interpret it? How should we respond to its temporal nature? We can summarize Paul's conclusion in three points. We're going to look at the first conclusion here this morning. That comes up in verses 1 through 10. And that's this. We should use and even use up the body in service to Christ. The temporal nature of the body means that we should use and even use up the body in service to Christ. Again, we see this in verses 1 through 10. Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You know, the Corinthians were right in at least one respect. The body is passing away. What they got wrong is number one, in what sense it's passing away. And number two, what to do with this knowledge. The Corinthians believe that the body was passing away in the sense that it's just going away entirely. That's wrong, Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 6, because the resurrection demonstrates that Christ has redeemed our body. so it's not going away entirely. But if that's the case, then what's happening to it? Paul actually goes on to explain in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not that it's being eliminated. Rather, it's being transformed. It's going to take on different properties with a different kind of existence. That's necessary, Paul explains, for the Christian to inhabit this other kind of heavenly realm. In 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49, if you would, maybe keep a, a finger in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, and turn there and read along with me. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. Paul says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. For no, all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for human, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory for the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man of am sorry, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I think you see there, Paul explains the body isn't eliminated, it's just changed. And behold, I tell you a mystery, he says just a couple of verses later. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed. In what way will the body be changed? There are at least four different senses, all of which appear again here, either in 2 Corinthians 5 or in its surrounding context. First, Paul says, this is 2 Corinthians 15, or 1 Corinthians 15 still. Paul says, verse 43, that it's a body that is sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. Paul seems to make reference to this towards the end of chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians. As he speaks about the intense physical suffering he's experienced on account of the gospel, he says that in spite of this, he does not lose heart. Verse 16, again, this is 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, As we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal what is this eternal weight of glory that's fueling paul's desire to persevere in his ministry and even make his suffering momentary and light by comparison i think you could say in the end it's two things Uh, First, it's this increasing demonstration of the grace of God that's occurring as more and more people come to faith in the gospel. Um, That actually comes from the preceding context. and I'll try to get into more of what I mean by that as we continue through this chapter next week. But the second aspect comes up here in verses 1 through 5 as Paul transitions out of this discussion of the outer self that's wasting away and onto this future body that he'll receive in the resurrection this is a body that's sown in dishonor and raised in glory you know here on this earth paul was experiencing an incredible amount of dishonor for the sake of the gospel right this is partly what the corinthians have so much trouble with how much paul was reviled for the sake of the gospel Listen, guys, he bears this rejection in his actual body. You even get a list of some of it later on. He's been whipped five times, beaten with rods three times, nearly stoned to death on another occasion. He's been beaten times without number, imprisoned often. He even has this thorn in the flesh, which some think refers to some affliction that he may be suffering in his eyes, perhaps even since his experience on the Damascus road. I mean, I mean, I think we probably fail to think about this very much to get the picture. But guys, do you realize how disfigured Paul probably was? Do you understand how many scars he bore on his body for the sake of Christ? Listen, there's a reason why the Corinthians think, according to 2 Corinthians 10.10, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. It probably isn't just because, according according to historical accounts, Paul was sort of a squat-bolding old dude. It's because this is a guy who bears in his body the dishonor that he suffered for Christ. Paul understands all this. And he says this body is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's part of this eternal weight of glory that he's looking for. Now, in what way is it raised in glory? I think we see at least part of the answer in this second aspect in which the body is changed. If you're still in 1 Corinthians 15, that aspect is also found in verse 43. Paul says, it is sown in weakness, is raised in power. You see, what all this suffering demonstrates is the frailty of this current flesh, right? You can wound it, you can scar it, even kill it. That's enough to make Paul refer to this body as a jar of clay in 2nd corinthians 4 7. you know a jar of clay isn't just a vessel that lacks the glory of a gold or silver vessel being reserved instead for more common uses but the reason it's used this way is because of how incredibly fragile and really cheap it is that's part of what's so shocking about what paul says in second corinthians 4 7 he says we have this treasure in jars of clay that's typically not where you would put a treasure right you don't put your valuables in a tupperware container or a folgers coffee can you put it in a safe or in some other more permanent vessel that's going to keep it secure paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the power belongs to god and not to us the power belongs to god and not to us that's the argument that we encounter back in first corinthians 1 and 2 if you remember. God chooses the weak vessel to display his glory so that all the glory goes to the treasure and not to the vessel so that no one can boast and say, well, you know, people just believe because of Paul's skill as a leader or on account of his communication skills or something like that. No, the only way that anyone can explain the salvations that occur under Paul's ministry is to say, it's the power of God. That's the only explanation. When you understand this This is a child's drawing, set in a million dollar frame so that you look at the frame instead of the picture and you say wow what a beautiful frame no it's a masterpiece that's framed by two by fours so that you look at the artist and say to yourself wow what a what a brilliant artist that's what's happening currently paul explains with his flesh and for this reason so that everyone would see that the power belongs to god and not to us but Paul understands it's all going to change. The body is not just going to be sown in dishonor and raised in glory, it's also going to be sown in weakness and raised in power. The fragility of this clay vessel is going away. In what way will it be raised in power? Again, I think I think we see at least part of the answer in the third aspect in which the body is changed. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. This is the dominant theme throughout this section of 2 Corinthians 5. The jar of clay is going to be transformed into something more permanent and abiding. This earthly tent, though it be destroyed, will be transformed into a building from God, eternal in the heavens. Paul says, verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Note the response there, by the way, to this whole idea that the body is just passing away. Paul says, look, I'm with you. I want to be free of this mortal flesh too. Only he says, but not to be left naked, you know, a soul without a body. Rather, he says, and he wants this to happen, that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal might be swallowed up in life. This is the third aspect in which the body will be different. Our current body is a temporary structure. The next one will be a permanent one. And you know why it will be permanent. Aspect number four, verse 44, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. There are really some interesting elements to what Paul says here. For instance, if you notice in, in 2 Corinthians 5, jumping back over there, he refers to this future body as quote a house not made with hands, apparently referring to this spiritual component, that this is not a physical body. It would appear that at least part of what this means is that this is not a procreated body. This is not a body formed through some kind of physical act. And there are some interesting concepts to consider there. However, perhaps the most significant element comes out in verses 48 and 49 of 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul says this, he says, I was actually starting in verse 47, he says, The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. He notes just a few verses earlier as well. He says, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Overall, the implication seems to be that you have these different kinds of bodies which are given according to a being's purpose or even the realm in which they live. Birds are built to fly in the sky, fish to swim in the water. In the same way, the first man was from the earth, so he possesses an earthly body, a body of dust. The second man, though, is from heaven, so he possesses a heavenly body, a spiritual one. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, he says, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, meaning we will possess a heavenly or spiritual body. This seems to be a large reason why the body will not die the earth may be temporary right the earth may be temporary and changing and doomed for destruction but the heavens or at least you know the new heavens and the new earth these are eternal they're permanent therefore such will it be with the body as paul says first corinthians 15 50. he says i tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable point being, we are still going to have a bodily existence, but the body that will have them is going to possess some different properties than the one that we're experiencing right now. And in this sense, the Corinthians were right. Our current body is in a sense, passing away. It's just not passing away in the sense that they think it is. It's not being eliminated. It's being, transformed it's being transformed into something else something better something more permanent and abiding so that's the one thing that one thing that the corinthians got wrong they were wrong about the sense in which the body is passing away the second thing they got wrong was what to do with that knowledge again they're falling into one of two camps they're concluding either the body is bad so you know use it and abuse it or they're thinking the body is bad so deny its cravings you know what? Uh, I think there's actually a sense in which they're both partially right. They're just not right in the sense that Paul means it. Look here at what Paul says in verses 6 through 10 now. This is 2 Corinthians 5. He says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If you look at that statement, you can summarize Paul's thinking in two points. First, he acknowledges that while the body is therefore good, right, based off of everything that he just said about it being better to be clothed, than to be naked he still acknowledges that it is better to be naked meaning bodiless in the presence of christ than away from the presence of christ in a body this also probably sounds pretty familiar it's a line of argumentation similar to what we encountered last week in first corinthians 7 with reference to the freedman man and the slave right you have these two conditions both of which are still good but one of which is actually still better than the other And do you remember how Paul resolved that tension? He said, remain as you are, right? He said, no need to force a change. He actually comes to the same conclusion here. He says, we're always of good courage. Basically, whatever condition we're in, we are happy and content, whether at home in the body or naked in the presence of the Lord, because although one state is preferable, both are still good. And then he says, so whether we're home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Again, that's the same conclusion that he came to with the slave and the freedman, right? To please the Lord in whatever condition you're in. This is the second point to draw from this paragraph. Point one, while one condition is preferable over another, both are still good. And so point two, I make it my aim to please the Lord in whatever condition I'm in, whether in the body or not. Now, look at why Paul comes to this conclusion. Verse 10. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is a really interesting verse. Paul talks about uh, appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. And as others have observed, the word for judgment seat here in the Greek uh, is this word, bematos, which refers to a seat up on an elevated platform. Uh, It was common in this culture. Authorities to render judgments from such a seat uh, that could be either in a judicial sense, meaning you know, uh, guilty or not guilty, or in the sense of distributing a reward. Uh, An athlete who won a prize, for instance, was awarded their prize uh, on a bema. So, linguistically, it could refer either to a judgment unto eternal life or death, or a judgment unto some kind of reward. And contextually, Paul is obviously referring to the latter, right. This is a bima from which the believer is being compensated for, and know how he says this, guys. He says, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The word for evil, just so you're aware, it does not refer to moral evil. Uh, That would be the word uh, kakos or poneros in the Greek. Instead, Paul uses the word uh, uh, phaulos here, which means something closer to worthless. That's significant because it indicates that Paul isn't talking about a punishment for some kind of evil done, which would seem to contradict the gospel, to imply that believers will stand before Christ and be punished for their sins. Rather, he's talking about the absence of a reward and the absence of a reward in response to some worthless or valueless act. I think it's very, very important that you understand this point. I think that as evangelical Christians, we tend to look out, uh, look at our motivations, uh, for repentance, uh, relatively negatively. We think I need to obey because if I don't, then I'll be punished or at the very least I'll be disciplined for my disobedience. We tend not to think I need to excel in glorifying God, because if I do, I'll be rewarded for my effort. Reason being we think that translates into works-based righteousness. And when we do that, we leave out a critical distinction, which the scripture actually tells us is foundational to our obedience. And that distinction is the fact that while the Bible does say that eternal life doesn't depend on our obedience, that's not the same as saying the, the same thing about eternal reward. That is very much in play. Just go and read what Paul says in first Corinthians three verses 10 through 15. It's It's very possible for the Christian to be saved quote, but only as through fire as all the work that they accomplished here in this flesh is burned up. Why does that matter? Uh, Well, it matters uh, for the same reason we discussed a, a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school. It matters because if you think there is no reward for your efforts, then it's going to be hard to find the motivation to do anything. And that's how a lot of Christians see their life in Christ. There's, penalty for disobedience but nothing to gain no profit on the other side of the spectrum they only get penalized for all their failures not rewarded for their successes friends that's a losing proposition you'll never find yourself glorifying god with your body if you think you're only going to be penalized for your failures without facing any kind of reward for your successes to quote hebrews 11 6 without faith it is impossible to please him For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You know what the really awesome news is that Paul shares with us in this passage? He says, you know, actually, it's the other way around. In Christ, you will not be penalized for your failures, but you will be rewarded for your successes. And if you want to object to me, when I say that and say, well, wait a second, we don't deserve our rewards. You know what I would say to you? I'd say you're absolutely right. And you know what? That's grace. My friends, that's grace. This is the gospel guys. Christ takes our penalty. So the only thing left for us to take is the reward, a reward, which by the way, we don't completely deserve. In fact, if I could put it this way, Paul isn't saying that he's fighting to achieve something for God in this passage as much as he is, Fighting to receive something from God. That's what this struggle is about. His desire to receive the grace of God. Can you see what Paul is doing here? Again, he's talking about his suffering, this physical affliction that he's experiencing on account of the gospel. And he's telling the Corinthians, do you want to know why I suffer this way? He says, I do it for the reward. This is how Paul responds to the frailty of the body, to the notion that it's temporary and passing away. If I could put it this way, there was this one group of Corinthians who said the body is passing away, so use it and abuse it. And do you know what? I think there's a sense in which Paul would actually agree with them. He too sees the body as frail and temporary and ultimately disposable. It's passing away in order to be swallowed up by something better. The group in first Corinthians six said, so let's use it for the sake of pleasure. Paul says, no, let's use it for the sake of profit. This is ultimately why like the Corinthians in first Corinthians seven, he even sometimes denied the physical cravings of the body made it his slave. He does it not because he fears some kind of punishment for Christ. If he does not do well, he does it rather because of the profit he'll lose. He's not thinking in terms of permissibility, right? But profitability. And Paul wants to optimize the use of his body for the maximum amount of reward. I mean, this is what he said in 1 Corinthians 6.12, right? He started out this discussion of sexual immorality by saying what? He said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are what? You remember? He said, helpful, literally, profitable. This is why he stays from sexual immorality in the end, why he stays away from it. Not so much because he fears that he'll be punished for it, but because he doesn't see any gain in it. It's a loss in his eyes, a waste of the very finite and expendable body that Christ has entrusted to him. So if I could put it like this, you know how Paul sees the body? To him, it's an investment. It's not something that you hold on to. It's money you spend for the sake of earning a greater profit. He suffers affliction and even risks death for the sake of the gospel. Because for Paul, the body is nothing more than a bit of seed. You don't hold on to seed, right? That's usually not where the value of the seed is in being a seed. No, the value is in the crop that the seed produces. And that's what the body is for Paul. It's this seed that though insignificant springs up into this beautiful plant, which hopefully yields an abundant harvest. And so for him, the body, isn't something you hold onto, it's something you plant. You take this flesh and you use it until finally people stick it into the ground, understanding that the profit from this labor comes after. Friends, this is how we're supposed to interpret the frailty. Of our flesh and this is what i would encourage you to consider this fall as you watch the seasons change and the leaves fall to the ground and die yes this world is changing and impermanent yes another year of your life is coming to a conclusion everything you see here is temporary including you and you know what it means it means now is the time to spend your body and invested in something more permanent and abiding means now is the time to plant. Now, plant what and how? That's what we'll explore together in part two of our series next week. Let's close with a word of prayer.